Education was not simply another part of American society. It was the key that opened the golden door. Education, you learn how to learn. We must trust, we must trust students to learn if given the chance. To learn if given the chance. podcast where we're going to be talking about all things education having to do with parents students teachers policy kind of whatever is happening in the news and what's relevant in the world today this is karen greenhouse one of your hosts we also have tim pope tim pope in the sauna it is 82 degrees in my office right now i'm feeling like it's 82 degrees in my office it is a a sauna outside it's kind of bizarre that it's october thank god there's no such thing as climate change (laughs) So this is episode five of our podcast, and today we're going to focus on, I'm trying to think of what we should title it, but it's Who You Gonna Call keeps coming to mind. Basically, the power structure of K-12 education, well, maybe education in general, but, you know, when you have a complaint about something, who is it that you should contact if there's a problem? Do you call the teacher, the principal, the state school board. So that's sort of what our focus is today. So we've decided maybe start at the top and work our way down as far as power structure. So for my research, top was the Department of Education, right? The National Department of Education. Well, the top in the terms of it services the largest number of people in affecting the largest number of students, then the answer is yes. I I would posit that in terms of decision-making that the state is actually the most powerful entity in the chain. I would agree because actually I was so surprised. I I read, um, like we had that conversation in one of our other podcasts about what percent of funding actually comes from the federal government. And it was what, between eight and 10%. So that was a surprise. So I went a little further and I was like, there's an actual little clause that says the Department of Education has no say in curriculum, program of instruction, administration, personnel decisions. So basically nothing. (laughs) It is definitely the state. So why does everyone have such a fear of this federal government, the U.S. Department of Education? Two things. Uh, First of all, it affects the most people. So Betsy DeVos makes the national paper in the national Twitter sphere much more so than the Pennsylvania Department of Education. So part of it is just the bully pulpit is really big. And so when she says something, a lot of people hear. And there is some dollars involved. And because the State Department of Ed, the school board, doesn't make the national press, you don't think about the dollars, even though the majority of dollars, the vast majority of dollars come from those local entities because they talk about billions. Well, billions of dollars in the federal government per student in a whole lot. Right. So there is some money involved in terms of how does the federal government influence schools. And to that end, starting really with the George W. Bush administration with NCLB, over the last 20 years, the federal government has made attempts to leverage that 8 to 10% to have influence on schools. And NCLB, by the way, no child left behind. Thank you. Uh, so here, so then, of course, we've talked about this one already, but then ESSA, or the elementary and secondary... No, I... Every student succeeds. Oh, is that at, right? what it is? Yeah, that's what it is. It's every. It basically replaced No Child Left Behind. It's less restrictive. Right. Which are both versions of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. Right. But anyway, ESSA has really attempted to pull back that federal government attempt to use its funding 
to influence school decision making. I mean, my big learning in this that we were just talking about right before we started, and I guess I, I knew this but never really considered it, nowhere in the Constitution does it say that a student has a right to a free public education. I mean, I hear that phrase all the time. Well, you have a right to a free public education. That right most students in this country have, but it's granted to them by the state, not the federal government. The federal government only gets involved in terms of equity issues. So if you read your 14th Amendment, I got to do my little constitutional learning. All right, very impressive. Um, there's something called the Equal Protection Clause, which means that if a right is established for a citizen, it has to be established equally for all citizens. And so equity issues are a federal issue. So the big ones that you may have heard of, um, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and you hear about schools having to provide um, special education services, and they have to be in uh, accessible buildings for students with physical handicaps. That comes that comes from the federal government because it's a constitutional equity issue. Um, the Civil Rights Act, everyone, if you remember your high school history class, for those of you who are young enough to have attended high school since the 1960s, um, <laughs> I didn't want to assume. I almost said everyone. Let's not assume. We're not making any assumption. So Brown versus Board of Education, the Civil Rights Act, in terms of giving students of all uh, races and uh, ethnic identities equal access to the rights that the states give. And then a little more controversially recently, Title IX, which came out in the early 70s, meant to provide gender equity to access to uh, that same free public education to men and women, boys and girls. Uh, so those are federal issues. And so when people like you're going to sue someone in federal court, you're suing because you're saying my state has not provided me the free public education that their Pennsylvania state constitution says I have a right to because I'm a woman or because I'm an African-American. OK, so that's sort of my understanding is and it actually made me feel better because I'm not happy with the administration currently in charge, but they really don't have that much power except if it's connected to those issues of funding for equity, uh, civil rights, those types of things. So everyone getting all upset about uh, school choice and uh, Common Core, those types of things, the federal government doesn't really have the power to do anything. It is the state. So as you said, it's the state departments of education and school boards that really control that big process. I mean, I don't want to completely downplay it. Right. There is a certain amount of money, like the title monies, title one funding, those kind of funding issues. Those are monies that come from the federal government that schools use to provide services for, for students that if that money to be reallocated, like I think we talked about this, when we talked about school choice, although it hasn't come up in the last few months, but initially one of the early budget proposals had this idea of allowing parents, if their student qualifies for title funding because they're a special needs student, that they could take that money to a private school. I mean, that would have a significant effect, especially on districts that get a significant amount of, of federal title funding. Also, in terms of Title IX, I mean, this has been in the news lately, more at the university level than the K-12 level, but that under the previous presidential administration, there was a greater emphasis on the Department of Ed taking a lead role in making sure that universities we're protecting the victims of sexual assault on campuses, and that's all falls under Title IX. So the federal government under President Obama had pursued that under, under Title IX, that women had federally constitutional right to uh, access to a university education, that if you're in an environment where there's sexual assault, then obviously you don't have that kind of access. And uh, our current Department of Education, Betsy DeVos, has, has come out and said they're going to reduce and restrict 
the uh, the types of investigations they're going to do under that. So it's not it's not completely, but it is. It seems a lot of it is tied to funding at the federal level. Well, especially for K twelve. So if you want the funding in the state, then you need to definitely be complying with the federal restrictions. But the states still have more power in determining curriculum and those types of things than the federal government. For sure. I mean, if you're a parent or a teacher of a K-12 student, with the exception of the title funding and the equity issues, yeah, by and large, your concerns are going to be at a much more local level, which I find intriguing because for as much as Betsy DeVos and what comes out of the Federal Department of Education is very visible in the news, I think most of the grave injustices that happen in education happen at the state and local level and no one ever knows about it. Correct, exactly. And so then if you have a complaint about something in your school, going to the federal government, someone in the federal government is not going to address your issue. You really need to go much more um, closer to home, whether that's local or state, depending what your issue is. Which brings us to the next level of this conversation, which is, all right, so what does the state do? And now I, I feel like I'm going to utter the phrase, it depends way too many times over the course of the next part of this podcast, just because states have ultimate responsibility, but then sometimes states hand those down. Like a state can say, we're going to control all of this at the state level, or it can say, we're going to hand this down to the school district. And every state is different. Exactly. I was like, oh my goodness, there's no consistency. <laughs> it's very, it's a little annoying, actually. I was like, oh my God. I suppose we, we need to find a, a link to a, maybe, I don't know if there is like a place, which is know your state. So I... I, I did actually, I did. I found, uh, I have a couple really good links where it basically oh, lists... Yeah the state's legislature structure side by side so you can compare you can just look at your own state and see you know whether your school board your state school board's elected or nominated and who appoints who and it's it was a great site so i'll, I'll definitely put that link on our uh, website so i mean at the end of the day to some extent or another each state is responsible for the regulation and operation of their k-12 schools as well as their state universities some way or another so like standards if you're if your concern is about the standards that are what's being taught in your child's school well your concern is at the is at the state level i think state boards of education are the most overlooked body of government because people like who runs for the state board of education and who votes in those elections they are incredibly powerful people and you know i've been trying not to be political in this podcast but i will say this having lived in texas for 20 years and gone to a state board of education meeting in the state of texas regardless of your politics i don't care if you're Democrat or Republican. It was the most, the group of the most <laughs> ignorant people uh, when it came to hot. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, here, cause here's what I found. I, in my, in that site that I'm going to share the link to it, it says most states, 36 of them, the members of the state's board of education are appointed by the governor. So it's going to be a political body for the most part because of whoever is in charge at the government at the governor level many of whom run on single issues who get involved like betsy devos i mean she became our secretary of education because she's almost singularly devoted to this issue of school choice and so she took that and has parlayed that into a position which is responsible for a slew of things beyond that but that's her thing and people run for school boards for the same reason. So you have people on the school board, and I don't want to say this is just a conservative thing, but I lived in the South for a long time, but people who had their issues with science education, and so they're going to be going on the state school board to make sure that evolution isn't taught in their school. Well, whether you agree or disagree with whether evolution should be taught in the school, those state school boards are invested with so much responsibility. It just 
cracks me up that anyone can be on a state school board. You don't have to know anything about education. <laughs> I know. That is the frightening thing. It's like who you know, and because they're appointed. Most of them are appointed by the state governor. And then they serve. It wasn't consistent from what I found that they can serve from four to seven years on a on a school state school board. So that's, you know, that's a big impact of time if you lean one way or another. Hospitals aren't run by a group of random people. Um, <laughs> They're usually doctors, right? Or yeah, Exactly. Yeah. Your, your uh, courts aren't run by a group of random people. So like, why do we have all these public institutions where in order to run that institution, you have to actually have knowledge of the field that are also paid with tax dollars, except for schools. And the logic has always been parents are ultimately responsible for their children. And so if you're a parent, then you should have a say in how your school is run. Well, parents have children that go to the doctor too. And Parents have children who go to court too. Right. It's not a logical argument. And it could be a huge reason why education isn't doing well some in some places, that type of thing, because of who is making those decisions. I mean, if you look at what the state boards of education are doing, they're basically in determining all the policy for what happens in your local schools. You know, like they they do the standards, they do the high school graduation requirements, they determine what licensing requirements are needed to become a teacher in that state or an administrator in that state. So all the big policy issues around education are being determined by the state boards of education. Yeah, I will say there is one exception. This, the state of Texas does have a more powerful position than the state board of education, and that would be the high school football coach. Um, but this is true. This is Texas. Okay, I lived there for 20 years, Texans, listening to the podcast. I have I respect high school football, and you all get that joke in the Let's go! And I lived in Texas too, so I got it. No, but it is it is amazing to me that something that is definitely rife with political leanings because of the appointed by the governor governor situation that they determine so much about what happens in schools, in local schools. For sure. It all comes from that state and who's the teachers and who, all that type of stuff. So it, it is amazing that non-educators tend to be on these state school boards of education, you know? I mean, think about it. Our Secretary of State of Education right now does not have an education degree. Didn't even go to public school, right? So, you know, it, it, it boggles my mind sometimes. Well, I want to say one more thing because you brought up a good point when you were going through the list in terms of, like, as a parent, things you would complain about, and one of them is often, like, all right, my kid's teacher isn't very good. But you talked about teacher certification, coming from the state, but also most teacher review systems and teacher evaluation systems come from the state level. So in, t in terms of how are teachers evaluated, how is a substandard teacher allowed to stay in the classroom? Right. Well, that's usually based on something that's coming from the state. At least the tool that's being used is coming from the state. Right. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of protocol. Having been someone who had to try to follow the protocol to, to get rid of a bad teacher, there is a lot of protocol and it's very hard to meet all the protocol standards to get rid of that teacher, which is why teachers tend to not be released or removed from duty, I guess is a better way to put it. So the unfortunate flip side of that for the teachers who are listening to this is that all that bureaucracy comes into place and then good teachers are also burnt out because they spend all this time doing the paperwork and going through the processes in order to keep their certification. And so while you're trying to sweep out the teachers who are better off finding another profession, you also end up exhausting teachers who you want to stick around. I just think that's an unfortunate byproduct of having a system as large as a state public school system. Because the state 
is so far away from the individual teacher, right? It really should be local control of that situation. So if you want to complain, is complaining to the State Board of Education going to be worth your time? If they're the ones making the, the curriculum decisions, right? What's the standards? And I don't like the standards. Let's say I'm a parent who doesn't like or a teacher don't like the Common Core. Do I go to the State Board of Education? Well, and we'll unfortunately, happen? and you talked about it already, the reality is in too many places, either A, there are appointed positions or B, they're elected positions, but only a small fraction of people are aware of it to know who they're voting for. I mean, the reality is even in the states where the state board is elected, such as, as Texas, the vast majority of voters, like there's the folks like us who really care about these things who look into this. But to many people, it's it's party line voting. Like I'm a Democrat. And so I'm voting. I don't know anything about these people that are going to go be on the state board of education, but they're Democrats. So they get my vote um, or they're Republicans and they get my vote. And uh, so it's I don't. The answer is yes, but unfortunately, I don't. They seem to be pretty protected positions. Um, they don't get a lot of media scrutiny because the national government has the national news. Your local, like our local school board meets, and it makes the local paper the next day every day. Um, but I couldn't tell you, as someone who's actively involved in education, I couldn't tell you when the Iowa State Board of Education meets. I got not a clue. I don't even know who's on the board. I couldn't name a single soul. I mean, but in theory, though. Let's and again, Common Core is just easy because that's in the news right now. But if I am against the standards that my state has adopted, I would need to be complaining to the State Board of Education because they are the ones who make that decision on which standards get adopted. Yeah, that's exactly it. So if the state controls the standards and complaining to them is technically how you would address issues if you don't like what your student is learning, if you don't like the requirements for graduation, if you don't like the math curriculum standards it's a state board decision so then what does that local school board do what's their power structure it's where i get to say it depends again so it's the execution it's the execution so like i said the state is in charge of regulation the local school district figures out the execution of that and part of that comes to funding in theory states are supposed to supply half of the funding to the local public school now there are states that are all the way down to like a quarter actually comes from the state and some are well over half and certain districts vary um, and just to clarify now i feel like we have to go back the funding for schools state funding from the schools comes from the state legislature not the state board of education right and it's a tax it's usually a tax-based percentage or whatever right so the state board of education typically has very little input on funding so don't go to your state board of education to complain about money that's a state legislature thing typically to figure out how are we going to uh, supply revenue to the schools so then when you get to the local school board it's two things it's executing the regulations provided by the state and federal level and it, it's allocating a budget and allocating funding whether that's the portion of the budget that's coming from the state or the remainder of the revenue for the schools which is coming from the local tax base typically in the form of um, business and residential property taxes so funding misses state board of education they're just more policy oh okay so then the local boards of education get the funding from federal and state and they allocate it. So, so the legislature determines how much of the funding is going to each school system in the state. How much state funding is gonna to go to each school district. And that, so that's curious to me is, you know, how do they make that decision? Like how does, you know, this district get a certain funding and this one gets, is it based on student population? Is it based on scores, you know? It's, it, this is where things get complicated. 
Um, and I don't know. I don't know if we're going beyond the scope of who to complain to. Oh, we, I think um, we might be. Yeah. It's per student roughly, but then there's a whole equity issue because states have run into problems with, well, if half of the funding is coming from the, at the local level, and if you're in a school district that has a low property tax base, then you have uh, states are getting sued all over the place. And now this is where the federal government gets involved because now it's an equity issue because you're not providing the same equal quality public education to all students in your state. I guess the, the short answer here, so that I go off into the weeds, is to basically, if you have a complaint about how schools are funding or how the funding that your school is getting or district, go to the state legislature, right? That's who you complain to. Yep. So they give a certain amount of money, but then often state legislatures, in order to make things equitable, they'll limit how much the local districts can charge. So for example, in Texas, they have what's commonly called the Robin Hood law, which is, all right, well, you can charge whatever you want in property tax, but once you get to a certain level, it all goes into a pot of money at the state level to be dispersed to other districts that have lower tax bases. To be equitable, right, in theory. I mean, at the end of the day, whether it's the state approving the funding itself or the state creating policy or laws around how much local governments can tax um, for schools, it's un unfortunately, it's rarely as simple as, well, we, the residents of Smithville, Ohio, want to have a better school so we'll all agree that we'll pay a little more in taxes well that may or may not be possible now most local school boards do have the ability to set local tax rates to some extent they also you may have heard of a tax levy election like if the school wants to they want to build a new high school and so they need to come up with the money to build a new high school they'll have a separate election that the school board in most states are authorized to hold to say all right are you is everyone willing to chalk up one percent of something right right usually tied to the value of your home so that we can build a new high school and then voters can thumbs up or thumbs down that so that's the funding so they set budget so in terms of you want to complain that the school band isn't sufficiently funded at your school well to some extent you can go to your local school board because at the end of the day they're the ones divvying up the pot that they have to the different schools and programs. Right. So if your school really should get new band uniforms. That's a school board issue. Your school should provide more specialists to help your student who has special needs. That's a school board issue. But local school board, not states. Local. Correct. That's a local school board issue. Um, know that because that pot of money in almost every school district is somewhat limited, that poor school board, a lot of it's, I mean, they're having to triage. Sure. And it's a tough it's a tough gig. And and from my research and you, from personal experience, um, most local school boards are elected by the school district residents, right? Right. And you ran. So I w your perspective on this would be very interesting. So these are just people who are volunteering to be part of this school board for a certain number. I don't even know what the, what is the term. I guess it varies by state. Uh, as I here it was four here it is four years. I shouldn't say it was. It is four years. I uh, I would guess that's somewhat typical, but that could vary. That could vary by state as well. How you get elected to the school board? It's a uh, be nice to your local school board members. It's it's a thankless task. They don't get paid. Well, most of them don't. I mean, I, my research said like over seventy five percent of school boards do not get paid. It's strictly voluntary. And it really is. I mean, when it comes to the budget, you're uh, they're trying to make hard decisions. Um, it's you have a limited pot. Funding, I mean, over 90% of most school district budgets are personnel. 
So when it comes to needing new textbooks or, or needing new furniture in a school or, the, or needing repair, that they're dealing with a small pot of money. Okay, so that speaks to when do you go to the school board? So the school board, the local school boards, are basically the decision makers on how do we implement the standards and the policies from the state and federal. So they're the ones who decide which textbooks or curriculum is going to be used in their district those types of things because they approve the budget that's where the textbook thing comes in they have to approve the purchase of the of the books of the textbooks right so i mean obviously they're not just making that decision by themselves there's a whole you and i have both served on textbook committees you know so they bring in the 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 content specialists and leaders to make a decision and look at all the options and then they propose something to the school board here's what we think is going to be best option to meet the standards and the school board then approves so if you're unhappy with your child's curriculum or textbook that they're using the local school board is the ultimate decider I, complaining is a different deal because usually school boards you think more in terms of oversight i mean so to go to your textbook example because that's something you and i both know pretty well so school boards will establish the process by which that district is going to pick a textbook some sort of teacher committee teacher vote that's something that's approved by the board and then the process goes through and the school board has the final vote but by and large the school board already approved the process now they do serve an oversight purpose so if a school is going to adopt a textbook and a group of citizens feel that it is a it's an abhorrent decision but is that gonna be worth my time or do i need a whole group i need to have a group a lobby group or whatever that's against it i'm thinking of our when we were in uh seattle fighting the math wars right but in that situation when they adopted those books there was a group of people who were against them and that became very much a hotbed that was a local board situation right right so they and in that case they went to the school board so there was an active group of citizens that went to the board looking for the board to overturn the use of our company's textbooks and the decision made by the the district in that case the school board affirmed the decision of their committee that their in the end their decision was we developed this process to make sure that all voices were heard and to make sure that all possibilities were examined and the best decision was made in the best learning interests of our students and so the board came through and affirmed the choice of that committee. So that's a good case in terms of what the role of the school board is. Now that Seattle case got a, got a little ugly because then those citizens turned around and sued the school district for adopting our books. And how did they, but what grounds did they have to sue them on? Go back to the beginning of this webinar. They sued them on equity issues. Oh, that's right. That's right, I've read about that. Because they couldn't sue them for adopting the books. There's no standing there. So what the lawsuit said they claimed was that the use of our company's textbooks were depriving students of their right to a free quality public education. Uh, was that lawsuit because they had already gone to the end of the road in terms of the policy, in terms of the funding. So then they had to go, if you're going to go up the ladder, you have to go up the ladder on something for which a higher authority. Federal related issue, not a curriculum. That's really interesting to know. Um, back to local school board. So they also, so the superintendents of school is actually part of this local school board. He's appointed by the School boards usually is what I found. Well, he's a non-voting member usually. So the local school board is kind of making sure things are following guidelines. So the superintendent is then appointed based on them 
So what's his role and how is it different from the local school board? Well, and typically in most districts, the superintendent is the one position that the school board hires and fires. That isn't always the case, but but typically that is yes. the one position that as a member of the school board, you do get to determine who's going to be the superintendent. And if you know business, it's best related to this idea of you have a board and then you have a CEO. And the superintendent is the CEO of the organization, the chief executive. The policies are determined by the board. Obviously, as a CEO who is a career educator, the CEO and the district employees are going to make recommendations to that board. But at the end of the day, the CEO's ultimate job is to to execute the policies created by the school board. So the superintendent is the one who hires all the other school administration. So the principals, the curriculum supervisors, they all fall under the superintendent's power. Right. So the superintendent then hires all the other employees. Uh, Now, it can come to the school board's attention. Usually, if there's a need for terminating an employee, that'll end up going through the school board due to financial oversight and there's budgetary things involved and there's legal concerns. And so often a uh, CEO will take termination of employees and make that an issue that the board makes a final decision on. Uh, same with expelling a student. Typically expelling a student would be something that a uh, the CEO, the superintendent would recommend to the board and then the board would make the final decision on whether that's going to happen. And, and all of those things have a definitely a process. You know, you first have to have so many warnings and then, you know, I'm just thinking of even teachers and all that type of thing. There's a process before it gets to the school board. And that process is established by the board because those are policies. So the board establishes the policies in terms of how do you enable the educators, the people who do this for a living, how do you enable those people, give them a, a structure to make the best decisions? And so typically, like if you go to a school board meeting, uh, most school board meetings are boring as all get up. If you go to your local school board meeting, I shouldn't dissuade people from going to the board meeting. The beginnings are usually really cute because usually at the beginning is when they'll bring in kids from the local elementary school choir to sing the song that they got second place. Or they're honoring teachers or they're doing something like that. Right? But usually that's the beginning, which is interesting. But typically at the board meeting, they're just approving things that have already gone through district board policies, processes that they're just doing a final execution on. And at the board meeting is a final oversight. Now, sometimes things will get heated because a decision has gone through a district process. And like in that Seattle case, there's a group of citizens that don't like where it ended up. And so they're coming sort of the school board is the last stand. An example would be, uh, we had a deal in our district last year where a small group of parents were upset about a novel that kids were assigned to read at the local high school. And so they took it to the board and said, all right, we're protesting. We don't think our kids should have to read this book. The book shouldn't be in schools at all. And at a minimum, parents should be given the list ahead of time and we should have an opt out if we don't want our kids reading this book. So the board had a policy in place already for what to do if a parent had a concern about objectionable material and so the board said all right and they established that committee based on a policy already established that committee got together they met a few times and then came back and uh, actually the spokesperson for the group of parents that started it came back with the group and said all right I, I take back my complaint it worked the way it was supposed to so the school board establishes policy and then provides oversight all right so local school boards are policy CEO or superintendent and his staff are basically ensuring that the policies are being followed and all that kind of stuff. So then we come to the principal. So how is the principal's role different? Or you were a principal for a while, right? I, I was. Yeah. Um, and thus, chief headache manager. 
I was more, I, I only was a, I was a curriculum, so under the superintendent's purvey, I guess, not, not in a single school. I mean, at the end of the day, though, the two roles are similar. You're executing policies established by your board, but you're making the decision, does something qualify? Like, all right, the policy that says students can only go off campus if they get permission slips and sign a waiver, yada, yada, yada. Jody comes to school, her mom's in the hospital, she couldn't get the permission slip signed, can she go on the field trip? But the principal gets to make that call. So the way I think of a principal, they're more of the day-to-day, everyday school kind of thing so the discipline the making sure teachers are teaching and those types of things school culture school climate those types of you know actions right they're and they're the executive in the technical sense of the word executive like all right are the standards being taught so it's a state policy what standards are supposed to be taught in the school well ultimately the principal is the one on campus on a daily basis to ensure that now theoretically the superintendent is also is also doing that, but then the superintendent tasks the principal with, all right, you're on that campus. Are the standards being taught the way they're supposed to? Are uh, safety policies for students, are they being executed as they're supposed to? The principal is the person who translates policy into practice. And they're also the ones, and so maybe I'm, uh, you know, back to your question, who who fires the football coach? Um, the principals are directly responsible for the hiring of the staff within their school. I know that it then has like they interview them, they the teachers, the coaches, all that type of stuff. And then it has to go to school board for final approval. But it but really the principals are making that decision about who's gonna work in their school for the most part. In theory, yes. I mean typically I don't know, in my experience, I guess all districts work differently. In my experience, I went through sort of a first wave through the district office to sort of be on the list of people the district found to be acceptable human beings right. when the school uh, when the school had an opening they would go to the district and get the list of like all right here are the here are the qualified math teachers that we vetted you can interview these people and then select from there but you know that honestly that's not always true in terms of the principal having final say yeah principals almost always end up interviewing the teachers but i mean there are districts in the country that by union negotiation there's a seniority deal like if a teacher who's been teaching for 30 years really wants to teach at your school they get to come teach at your school so typically but not always does the principal have the ability to hire and they definitely don't have the ability to fire they can recommend it and again they're executing a policy the district has a policy for how you go about terminating a uh, an employee whether it's a teacher or the cafeteria worker and they step through the policy the process but then at the end of the day typically it's the school board will meet in private session and make that decision. I mean, I know it's it's definitely protocol. I'm sure every state and district has their own different protocol. But when I was an administrator, part of my responsibility was to go to observe teachers that had started that process where they were trying to get them out of the district, right? So there had to be so many observations. There had to be so much documentation. There had to be so many warnings and chances for them to change their practice. So it was a very, very long, arduous process. And a lot of times what happened is it got to the point where they would then just transfer the teacher to a different school and the process started over again. So if you're not happy with your child's teacher, who do you complain to? That's kind of a tough question. Obviously, the first thing is to, I would think, 
talk to the teacher, but <laughs> that doesn't always happen. Which is what you should do, but we, we generally, our culture is a non-confrontational culture. And right, exactly. So it's it's hard to do. It's a little easier now because people like to complain via email when you don't have to actually look someone in the eye and tell them that you think they're horrible. But I mean, if you have a legit, if you have a legitimate complaint about a teacher, whether it's the way they're teaching or the way they've treated a student, those types of things, your first line is, if you're not going to go to the teacher, your first line is probably the principal, right? Well, depending on the size of the school, um, the school might route you to a department chair or to an assistant principal first. But yes, somebody in the administration. I mean, if you feel that for whatever reason that you're not going to be capable of having a an objective conversation with that person, my only recommendation, though, is own that for yourself. Don't assume, like, if you're going to go to an administrator because... Rather than saying, well, this teacher is a horrible teacher and I don't want to talk to them or there's no way that person will ever listen. I mean, be honest with yourself when you're going to the administrator. Like, all right, I have real concerns. My daughter is having a really rough relationship with this teacher. I don't feel comfortable talking to this teacher. Here are my concerns. Um, like own it for yourself rather than pushing it off. And this person, you, you may or may not even know that well and saying, well, they're the reason. Remembering that the prince, whether it's the principal or some other administrator, they're executing policy. So if you're going to go complain about a teacher, you have to know what policy you're complaining about because the administrator is only executing policies and rules that exist. So if you're going to go and say, I want my student to have another teacher, it, uh, you have to have you have to seed it in policy. Every school district has policies about teachers respecting students. If you feel that your your child's teacher isn't respecting students, plant it in policy and have some specific evidence for what has happened to lead you to draw that conclusion. Mrs. Smith is mean to my daughter is not going to get you very far because there's no policy behind that. I feel Mrs. Smith is not respecting my daughter because when she turned in her paper, and I know she turned it in 20 minutes before it was due, and here's the email testifying to that. That and the teacher gave her a zero. Well, now you have a policy that you you can stand on. Yeah, I mean it. I mean it's hard to do, but take that emotion out and try to or talk to the teacher. I'm telling you, as a teacher, not that it ever happened to me, but I know teachers who they heard about a complaint of a student or a parent from the principal instead of that parent directly saying something to them and it was a relatively simple issue right but it became a much bigger deal because they went to the principal before trying to work things out with the teacher at the end of the day however you approach them you have to remove the emotion i would say there are exceptions but the vast majority of the time it doesn't need to be dealt with that hour it can wait a day or two it can wait till you have a chance to get some perspective on it you know write the email and then let it sit in your inbox for a day before you press send but better yet i mean this is just life advice <laughs> make the call i mean the email should just say hey can we have a conversation i have some concerns so that kind of leads us back down to okay we're down to the teacher when do you complain to a teacher when do you what kind of power do they actually have because it seems like they don't really have any control over the curriculum that's being taught that's coming from uh, the state, right? So they don't have power over that. They don't have power over the tests that the kids have to take or the classes they have to pass for graduation. So what is it that a teacher has control over and when do you talk to a teacher to try to get something changed? 
I mean, grades and discipline. I mean, when it comes to discipline, that's all interpretation. It's like a police officer. I mean, the rules exist, and then a teacher is going to interpret um, those rules. Like, did the student really cheat on the on that exam? There's a little he said, she said. I mean, but at the end of the day, a teacher typically doesn't meet out consequences. That's usually done by an administrator. A teacher may report a student, uh, write them up. Every school has their own little way of doing that. But typically, in terms of uh, any meaningful consequence beyond like a detention type thing that's going to come from the administration. So at the end of the day, you're really talking about grades. Grades and basically the teacher's in charge of what happens in that classroom. So the classroom structure, how she's teaching, whether we're going to do group work, whatever. And if your student doesn't do well in groups and that's all this teacher does, then that's something you talk to the teacher about. How can we help my child who's having a difficult in this classroom structure? I mean, you could have a conversation like my recent interaction with my son's math teacher. And that's only because I'm a dork, but he brought home his homework and he's sitting there and he's doing all his homework on matrices. And so I'm looking at it. I'm like, okay, I know for a fact that the state of Iowa and our school district has adopted the Common Core and matrices aren't anywhere in the Common Core for algebra. So why are you spending this time in your algebra class doing matrices? So that's a question I took to the teacher and the teacher's like, well, this is in our district. This is in our school scope and sequence which then, so now my next step is to talk to the department chair and then I'll, I work my way up the up the ladder. But that brings up a really interesting question because actually I have worked in school districts where the state standards are, you know, the common core, but then the local districts added in their own, which sounds like that's what's happening in your schools. They've added in their own things that they feel are as important. Well, and that's not a school decision to make. In terms of the standards being taught in a classroom, that's a state decision. Like in Wisconsin, for example, the state then allows the district to then make a decision on it on a district level. So each level of that hierarchy could choose to let the next level down make that decision. Now, in my case, I know that's not the case, that the state adopted the Common Core as is, the district adopted the Common Core as is. That's what is supposed to be being taught in my kid's school. So the school's doing something that is not in their ring of power. <laughs> I don't know what I'm trying to think. What's a good way to describe that? The teacher doesn't have a lot of say over what gets taught in the classroom. And I know a lot of teachers don't like that, but I'm sorry, I do. I'm perfectly fine with the fact that I don't have to find out every year from whichever teacher my son has for math that year what that teacher wants to teach in that class. Oh, great. And if you want kids, I mean, you think about our, I do a lot of work with the military and they did have that situation where you'd go on one base and the third grade teacher's teaching this, you go to another one, it's different. And they have changed that policy because that's just not fair to students who move a lot or go to a different school district or go to a different state. It should be kind of consistent. That's what the whole Common Core was about to begin with anyway. But I agree with you. I think that decision should be a state decision. And then how you teach it can be where you're getting your flexibility. So, I mean, to take this conversation full circle, it becomes an equity issue. That decision-making on what gets taught and how a classroom is run, the lower you take it, the more inconsistent it's gonna be. So why is that the one thing that the federal government has control over is equity, is because like, all right, we're gonna go to the top of the heap. And what do we need to do to ensure that every student has access to a quality education? And so that has to start at a higher level and then work its way down. So as a parent or whatever, the, probably the biggest things are usually, I don't like what's being taught. I don't like the textbook. Those issues are then going to have to go to your local school board, right? Right. And then if they don't like the teacher, that can be the teacher themselves or the principal. And then who decides um, whether a child goes to honors or gifted or pre-AP? That's an interesting question. And that comes up a lot these days. 
Who is that? It should, in theory, it should be district policy. Right. The district usually has a process by which it determines whether a, a student qualifies for accelerated learning. And if you have an issue with that process, then that's your issue ultimately with the school board. But in terms of who would I complain to, you start your complaint depending on the size of the district. If it's a larger district, there's someone in charge of uh, gifted education, accelerated learning for the district. Or if it's a smaller district, there's someone who's the head of instruction at the district level, like an assistant superintendent. If it's a really small district, it might be the principal. But going to the teacher is not going to change whether your child's going to go into AP. I mean, obviously the teacher, the grade, right, is an impact of it. That's usually part of a policy. But it really is look at your district's policies and see what the qualifications are because that's what teachers and principals and schools are making their decision on. I got to go through this live and in person with our son because we switched him. He was going to a private school and we switched him to a public school halfway through middle school and he had been taking accelerated classes. The district had a policy around how students could be identified as gifted learners and he basically came in too late to do it the way that they normally do it and so then it was going to be this whole arcane process and then that's that's what we did. We started with the gifted coordinator and who said this is our policy and she was executing the policy as it was written. It was not her fault. Um, it's nobody's fault really. Then uh, we went to the assistant superintendent. Uh, this was the unfortunate part. Like I felt like sometimes the system requires you to be more knowledgeable and active than I think it should be. I And of course back to me being a dork thing. <laughs> we come back to that a lot. You know my, my kids say the <laughs> same thing. <laughs> But uh, so I, I'd actually, I actually did a little research and submitted a letter and said, all right, here's how, so here's how students should be identified as gifted. Um, now, I would like to say that I educated the district and they changed their mind because they're going to change their policy. There's, there's a chance, there's a chance that they were just annoyed and said, all right, well, if we just let him take that class, then he'll leave me alone. But I mean, the policies are there. I mean, you have to think about that. The policies are there back to the federal, you know, equity thing. That's why those policies are there, so that the decisions that are made are, are equitable and fair to all students, in theory. Uh, right. And the, the district was executing its policy. I appreciate why the policy exists. I personally don't agree with the policy, which, I mean, honestly, if I were a better citizen, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have stopped when they let my son um, go into the class that uh, I, as a parent, felt that he should be in. I mean, I really should have taken that to the next level and gone to the board. So if you have a complaint or an issue or something you're worried about in your school or with your teachers, whatever, who you complain to depends. It just depends on what your issue is. Right. And I feel bad. Maybe this wraps this up. Unfortunately, the whole who should you call, like we went through this, A, it's complicated. I mean, we've given so many caveats and B, even when you know the right person, you have to do your homework to advocate for your child. And it's unfortunate. I mean, if you talk to any teacher or parent of a special needs student who qualifies for special education, it's a tragedy that for a student to receive the services they need, how much fighting a parent has to do. But I don't know the solution. I have yet to meet any special ed coordinator or special ed teacher who isn't working in overdrive to fight for to fight for their students and to care for their students. I've never met that person. I've met some really lousy math teachers, science <laughs> teachers, everywhere else. But you're right. You're absolutely right. They work hard. So there's people you can call, but it doesn't necessarily mean that things will happen. Unfortunately, you need to know what the policies are. I will tell you, like that was my mistake. The whole I talked about my son and the whole gifted deal. My mistake was I knew where I wanted him to be, but I hadn't done my homework to figure out, well, what is the district's policy around determining whether students should be in gifted classes? And so honestly, the first point 
point of contact on this. Her response was basically she copied me and she attached the policy to an email and said, read this and then talk to me. You know, that's probably a good way to end this, that if you do have a complaint, you know, think about who and where it falls. Um, we're going to provide a ton of links. But research the policy because you want to go in with a good defense and talking to the right people. So make sure you do a little research before you just act in anger or, or whatever. Well, and I would say even if, I mean, we'll provide all the links, but even if you're busy person, you don't necessarily have time. Maybe that's your first question when you talk to that first person in the school is, can you tell me what the policy is around so that you know from where you're starting before you advocate for your child? And usually most educators, they're, I mean, they're only executing the policy that exists. So for you to start with, hey, can you let me know what this policy is? is probably a good way to start that conversation. And then you're helping that educator, that administrator you're talking to maybe not feel so defensive. All right. Well, on that note... I think we will call it a episode closure. Da, 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 da. So thank you for listening and our usual caveats. We need reviews. We do. We have like what one, two. So should we? I want to give a shout out to our friend Scuba Jack. So Scuba Jack gave a fine review, um, all five stars, and uh, commending our, our new uh, podcast. I uh, thank you, Scuba Jack. Yeah. I really just figured it was one of uh, Greenhouse's friends or something. That was, I uh, don't know who it is, so it'll be interesting to find out. But uh, yeah, so thanks for listening. But really, uh, give us some ratings on iTunes. We would love it. We'd also just love some feedback. Um, we have our our website where I'm posting links and some. Uh, interesting tidbits that kind of go along with each episode so we'd love some feedback you know what do you want to hear about um we're coming up with ideas and we'd love to hear what would be of interest to you as well so thanks for listening groovy groovy the educated citizen know how much more there is to know knowledge is power more so today